This is One Ogden. I'm John Miles. Taylor Knuth is running for Ogden City Mayor. He's lived in this area for most of his life, and he's done work for numerous service and cultural organizations, and on various projects to improve the Ogden area. And also, my wife Sheena joins this episode as a co-host. Um, yeah, we left a little bit after college to do some college and to do some internships in New York. But as the story goes, the mountains were calling, and we came back. What were you studying? We studied musical theater together. And so that's what you were interning in in New York? Yeah, we worked on Broadway, did the whole thing, worked on a few Broadway shows, John costumed, I did admin stuff. That's cool. Know. So how was living there? Did you like it? New York taught me a lot. It was probably the loneliest I've ever been in my whole lifetime, which is surprising because you're surrounded by, you know, 15, 16 million people on a little island. And we didn't have any family. And, you know, I'm fifth generation Utah through and through and family is a big value for me. Um, so it just felt... It felt lonely a lot of the time, but living in a big city, you learn a lot. You learn, you know, you learn how resourceful you can be. I think we both, we moved out there with, you know, $20,000 in our savings and blew through that really quick. (laughs) But yeah, it, it, it was a wake up call for us because I think we spent most of our early years living in Ogden chasing a dream and we didn't think that dream was in Ogden. And we learned quickly that that wasn't the case. The first time I ever heard about you was when you were getting married do you do you talk about the macklemore story very much no i don't actually i don't (laughs) will you tell me just how that all happened yeah so um sean and i met in 2011 at weber state um and you know i was still in the closet i hadn't i wasn't out to many people at the time um and we started dating in in early 2012 a year and a half later we got engaged and we planned to have like a really long engagement because i didn't want to get married until i was done with school and i didn't want to get married without a plan of if we'd buy a house or if we'd move to new york and so fall of 2013 we got a random message on Facebook that said, hey, we're looking for young queer couples who are engaged, who want to get married, and would you be interested in getting married on national television? And we're like, well, can you tell us more details? And they're like, well, not without you signing an NDA. And all we can tell you is that you would be married on this day in January, and you have to show up in LA and and basically trust that what we're saying to you is true. <laughs> Um, and like buy your own tickets and everything. Buy your own tickets. Yeah. Yep. Oh my gosh. And I, it was very scary and it was very like, <laughs> this is not real. Um, but you know, Sean is very resourceful on the internet. And so he started doing some Googling and he Googled the production company and the only thing they produce is the Grammy Awards. And we Googled when the Grammy Awards would be. And then we're like, oh, that's on January 26th. It's the Grammy Awards. And we're like, what can you tell us? And they're like, well, we can tell you that a very famous person is going to be the officiant of your wedding. So they will actually sign your wedding certificate. And we can tell you that several very famous people will, will sing at your wedding. That's what we can tell you. And so, um, you know, we were actually in Hawaii when all of this was happening with my whole family and my, you know, my sister, Sam is very risk averse. And she was like, Oh, this doesn't sound real. They're going to take advantage of you. Blah, blah, blah. You know, Sam. (laughs) So, um, we did it. We bought two suits on a credit card because we were poor college students. And, you know, Sean's mom bought our plane tickets and we stayed with Sean's sister who was living in L.A. at the time. And we showed up and, you know, it was the 65th annual Grammy Awards. And at the Staples Center, we found out that it was Madonna and Macklemore who would be singing with because Macklemore had just released his kind of hit song that year, Same Love. 
And they're like, oh, yeah, and Queen Latifah is going to sign your wedding certificate. And so the next morning we woke up and we took an Uber to the Staples Center and we were in this big giant tent with 32 other couples from around the country and we got married (laughs) on the Grammys and Queen Latifah signed our wedding certificate. Yeah, I watched it on TV. I know. And that was the thing is we couldn't tell anybody. We just, I think like our wedding announcement that we shared with family and friends was very, we had to be very vague. We just told all of our friends like, hey, turn on the TV. It's going to be on this station and it's going to be at this time. And, you know, Sean's sister, because she lived in L.A. at the time, she was pretty smart and she was able to find like a ticket to the Grammy. So we were able to have her in the stadium with us. But it was wild. Like just line. We they they lined us up underneath the stage and we were just kind of standing there. And I don't I don't really I don't really follow pop culture much. All these famous people are just walking by us like Sandra Bullock and Willie Nelson and (laughs) um, Chrissy Teigen and John Legend, who I didn't know. And like, I'm just standing there and like Chrissy Teigen's like, who are you? And I'm like, I'm Taylor. <laughs> and she's like, what are you doing here? And I'm like, we're about to get married. <laughs> and she's like, what? John, stop. John, come here and take a picture with these guys. I was like, Sean, who is that? <laughs> like, I didn't know. And he's like, that's Chrissy Teigen. She's from Delta, which is where Sean's from. She was born in Delta. She Delta, was born Utah? In Delta? She was born in Delta, Utah. Not many wow. people know that. I didn't know that. And then... um Ariana Grande walked out and I didn't know who she was. She's like, a, she's like a, like a Polly Pocket. She's very small. Yeah. And she had this big dress on and she was like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm about to get married. She's like, that's so cool. And she like <laughs> gave me a hug and she walked away. And I was like, who is that? And Sean's like, she just won artist of the year. <laughs> so it was, it was very, very kind of like, it was just a whirlwind of emotions and of like, you know, we, we stood in the aisles as, as Queen Latifah came on this stage and like Ozzy Osbourne's like right by my butt. And, you know, we walked by like Katy Perry and Beyonce and Sean was, Katy Perry was like, I'm so proud of you. And Sean was like, I love you. And she hugged him and was like, I love you. <laughs> so it was just, so, it was wild. It was wild and then like the days that followed like we were getting press interviews from around the world and we talked to people in Canada and and in in Brazil and it was just crazy and then of course um June is when Utah passed the ban on gay marriage or I guess the kind of step backwards on gay marriage so it voided our marriage in the state of Utah, but oh. of course that then laid the found, found the foundation for marriage to become legal. So we ended up doing a small ceremony in September of of 2014 with friends and family here in Ogden, and then by 2015 our marriage was finally recognized with Obergefell. So ah, it's a great story, yeah. But so then your degree was in musical theater. Yep. But then you you went to work in like service basically right away, right? Yeah. So I graduated in 2014 from Weber. And well, I had worked for a few arts nonprofits kind of after graduation, kind of doing the thing. Sean was working at the Home Depot call center of all places. And when we decided to move to New York, we came back and I actually moved home in advance of Sean because Sean was finishing his contract and I just wanted to, I, the, I was so alone in New York City and I wanted to be back home with family. So I lived with my oldest sister for a few months while Sean was still in New York. And actually I didn't have a job, didn't know what I was going to do. But on when I landed in Salt Lake City, um, I got a call from my old boss at Weber State and he was like, hey, this job just came open. You'd be great for it. Do you want to, you want to take it? And that was a Thursday. And by Monday I had a job like that's, that's Ogden for you though, right? Like Ogden shows up for people. Yeah. Um, and I started working for Weber state and I worked for Weber for about a year in that role, kind of doing office of cultural affairs. So I would, I was responsible for busing young kids up to Weber to experience like the theater and the music and the dance. 
Um, and then I, at the same time, I was like, you know what, like, I want to change. I want to do something differently. So that's when I got my job at United Way and started doing community engagement full time. And when I was at Weber, I was a student worker that did that job, but as a student worker. So I did community engagement from basically 2011 in Ogden, 2011 to about 2018. Hmm. And so was it, uh, were you fundraising at Weber State? That, yeah, I took my fundraising job. When was that? 20, 2018. So I went back to Weber to fundraise full time after doing community engagement with United Way. And yeah, I, I, I was able to fundraise for the Office of Community Development, which is kind of like the civic engagement arm of Weber State and was able to secure some pretty good uh, gifts to support like Ogden Civic Action Network is one of the biggest things I fundraise for. And we were able to lay the foundation for the Resident Leadership Network. I think they call it the Community Leadership Network work now, but we raised about a million dollars to actually hire residents in Ogden to work on issues that are important to them. So it was really cool to kind of see that like, you know, block by block, neighborhood by neighborhood working to make the community better on whatever issue they wanted to work on. So it starts in arts nonprofit, moves to service nonprofit, then moves to nonprofit fundraising. And then that led to what is it now that you're doing? So I work in the Department of Economic Development. I'm a deputy director over the culture, arts and culture division. Um, so our whole department is kind of dedicated to culture and commerce is what we say. So really laying the foundation for our capital city to have a vibrant art scene, a vibrant uh, business scene. One of the projects that we're working on right now is a pedestrian mall on Main Street. So sh- permanently shutting down 2nd to 4th Street to ensure that, you know, we have a, a vibrant downtown of our capital city. So, yeah, I, I run a staff of 14, 15 people, just depending on the time of the year. And and we really just do our best to make the capital city, the you know, a city where people want to, to spend time and spend money and, 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 and build community. So mm. and I've been doing that for uh, almost three years now. And so when was it that you first started thinking about running for office? I actually ran for office in 2017. I didn't intend to. It was kind of a very last minute, last day of the filing period decision. I was actually, I started working in nonprofits because a a coworker and friend at the time, Angela Chaburka, she had announced that she wanted to run for council district one uh, downtown. Um, And I actually started as her campaign manager. And so from like January to June, I was really helping Angela lay an incredible foundation for her campaign. And, you know, the, we went to file her campaign and the incumbent of District 3 at the time, Doug Stevens, he was there filing. And I saw him and I said, Doug, I thought you weren't going to run. I thought because he had said, you know, I've been on council for 12 years. I'm kind of tired. I don't want to run. He's like, no, I just I have one one more term in me. And at the time, there was no other declared candidates. And I, I you know, I went home and I was griping to Sean, like, you know, like, I just don't think that people should be in office for 16 years. Like someone really should run against this guy. And I was just being, you know, and Sean finally looked at me. He's like, well, then why do you, why don't you run? <laughs> I was like, oh God, here we go. So I, the next day I was like, Hey, I'm going to do it. I have $35. So I filed and, um, spent that entire summer running my first political campaign for Ogden city council and district three. The biggest issue of that summer was backyard chickens. Oh, yeah. Um, if you remember the chicken debacle <laughs> of 2017, that. Yeah, yep. that was huge. it was huge. And, um, I was really proud of that race. You know, um, I had no name recognition, nobody who knew who I was. I was just some dumb kid that worked for a nonprofit doing community engagement. My message was all around like inclusion and belonging and, and representation. 
education and um, and we doubled more than doubled voter turnout in that year and we lost by you know three or four hundred votes and mm-hmm. it, I was really proud of the work that we did in that campaign and more more importantly from just that campaign we were able to lay the foundation for the next candidate Priscilla Martinez who ran in 2021 to run a campaign that was incredible and she only lost by 70 votes you know a yeah. woman of color yeah. coming into the scene running against an, uh, someone who had great name recognition and council member Richie is a fantastic council member she really did lose to a great guy but you know i just there's this there's this shift in ogden that's happening where younger people where people of color and queer people are really starting to come into their own and build this sense of community. And that's what we've been building for the last 12 years that Sean and I have been in the city. So for the record, what's your stance on backyard chickens? I love backyard chickens. I've always loved backyard chickens, especially with egg prices as high as they are. Can you even? And so then what was it that made you decide to get into this mayor's race now? Being involved in this community in the ways that I've been involved over the years, um, it's really allowed me to see a, a part of Ogden that I wouldn't have been able to see had see had I been elected in 2017, right? Like I've been on the streets talking to my neighbors, talking about the issues that are important to them. Um, in 2020, when COVID hit, I remember I was the chair of the diversity commission at the time and someone from the state came and presented on health disparities in Ogden City and how even though 30, 34% of Ogden is Hispanic and Latino, there was a huge overwhelming health disparity for COVID, um, both in infection rates and in death rates. And we saw about 70 to 80% of our COVID cases in the city were in our Hispanic and Latino community. That's a, that's more than double the population, but they were sharing a huge uh, proportion of these infections and deaths. And I, I looked around and I saw a lot of people spending a lot of time in boardrooms talking about the issue, but I saw nobody on the streets actually doing anything about it. So I, I got to work and I organized the Ogden City Multicultural Task Force on COVID-19. We convened about 30 leaders of color from the nonprofit sector, the government sector, people who just were community volunteers. And we we got to work. We raised money so that the city and the county would translate critical health documents into Spanish because all of this information of COVID was hitting at a hitting us like a hurricane. I'm sure you all remember. Um, but none of the information was being translated in Spanish. So we were able to you know, dedicate hundreds of thousands of dollars so that the health department, Weber State, Intermountain Healthcare, Ogden City were, you know, within months mobilizing a translation effort. But not only that, we spent like I spent every Thursday night at Rancho Market passing out masks because this idea of like, hey, a mask is, a uh, you know, a personal protective piece of equipment. We, we distributed almost over 60,000 masks that summer at, at Rancho, at the bus stops. Like, we were on the streets doing the work. It made me realize that the change that I wanted to see wasn't in the boardroom. It was in the living room. And it made me see that there was more power standing on someone's front porch talking about the impact they can have on their neighbors than it is standing behind a pulpit and kind of talking in circles with people who think like you. In, in Ogden City, we held the largest testing site for COVID-19. We tested over 900 people the week before Thanksgiving because we knew people would want to be spending time with their family. So we held a test site and we told people, you're going to get tested. And if you test negative, go have Thanksgiving with your family. Go enjoy what this, you know, what this holiday is all about. And to this day, it remains the largest testing site in a single day that's ever happened in our state. And that wasn't organized by the health department. That wasn't organized by the bureaucrats who sit in city hall. That was organized by us, by the community leaders who are used to engaging with our neighbors on the streets. And that's just one example of of this sense of community for me that's so powerful. And, 
you know, I look at the city, I walk by the city building and I see a building that's closed, right? The front doors are locked. There's a sign that says, do not enter. Mm -hmm. Our residents and visitors of the city who want to engage with the city have to go around the building, enter through the basement, be greeted by a security officer, walk by the jail. And, you know, the security officer, officer says, what's your business here? It's not a building that welcomes that sort of engagement. And for me, I, I see, uh, you know, a, a system of our city, of our local government that's not working for the people anymore. And I want to put people back at the center of government. And my background in community engagement over the last 12 years lays the foundation for that to happen. You know, I said in my launch speech, the next mayor of Ogden City needs to know the names of the barbers and the bartenders, the postal workers and the police officers, the school teachers and the service members. That's who I am. And that's who I've been for the last 12 years living and working and playing and volunteering in this city. And I've seen so many people who are eager to get involved in local government, but the vehicle to make that happen is both literally and metaphorically absent from from the city landscape. Mm -hmm. So that's why I jumped into this race. It really is back to the basics. It's putting people back at the center of government. It's focusing on this idea of building community and creating connections and ensuring that young people can build their character and their foundation to be contributing members of society, right? Yeah, well, and I have to say, too, that when you were in that role at United Way, and yeah. I was starting my like nonprofit That's organization, right. Love Ogden, I think I reached out to you. Yeah. And you were one of the first people that really made me feel like I had a valid idea. Mm-hmm. And you just jumped on board. And we we had this really great partnership. Yeah. And I think that you are someone and we collected who, backpacks that summer. We collected we, backpacks. I, right. I helped with the turkey drive. Um, but more than that, you just like gave me the confidence that what I was doing could make a difference and invested your time yep. and made me feel like I had the community behind yep. me. And I think that that is so powerful. You are someone who will get your hands dirty mm-hmm. and you don't need everyone else to know about it. Well, and that's that sort of like can do attitude from individuals like yourself. It's can it's contagious, right? Yeah. And it's just like there's this sense of, you know, block by block and neighborhood by neighborhood. Ogden residents are realizing that the future of our city really depends on them, mm-hmm. right? In the last five years, I'd say, I've seen this like need for community to organize outside of the city. And I'm not saying that that should ever go away. People should organize on issue that issues that are important to them be it backyard chickens or love Ogden or, you know, making sure kids have backpacks, that sort of energy should never go away. Mm -hmm. But I want to ensure that the city is responsive to that. So, and, 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 and even more than responsive, proactive in, in, in learning from our, our residents, the future of our city will be built on the ideas of our residents. Mm -hmm. They will, it will be built on this idea that, that we can make change. Like I think of my neighbor, Ava, She's a part of Ogden Civic Action Network's community leader program that I helped to start. And she, and I wrote a piece about this in the Tribune a few weeks ago with Councilmember Toberka. And she, you know, has lived in Ogden for decades. She, she takes her kids to the park at Lester Park. She goes to the library. And over the years, she noticed a decline in the quality of that park. She noticed a decline in people using the park. She noticed the absence of park benches and the absence of like recreational activities to do in that park. 
And she did something about it. She's doing something about it. Like Mm -hmm. in the next year, we're going to see a lighted crosswalk so that we can ensure that kids can cross from, you know, one side of the street to the other with safety. And she's, she, she's created these incredible recreation kits that you can check out from the park so that you can go throw a football. If you don't have one at home, you can go borrow one from the library. And she's, she's got a cleanup crew that walks around the park to help clean it up. Like, that's the change that I want to see in city government. That's the change that I want to see amplified across all areas of our city. Mm-hmm. The, the answers are in our community. We just have to listen. It's really that simple. Right. Well, that's one of the things I was curious about, you know, because I've seen you at the city council meetings, you know, for the last five or six years, whenever something big is happening, you're kind of there and with mm-hmm. it. I'm just wondering, like, how you stay in touch with the needs of the city, because it, it sounds like maybe it's not your job. No, it's not my job. And in fact, if you go back and listen to the comments that I make at city council, more often than not, I'm talking about how exhausting the work is, right? To be politically engaged or civically engaged, it's a, it's a, it can turn into a full-time job. And your average resident doesn't really have the capacity to do that when they're worrying about being a parent or worrying about where their next meal is going to come from, right? We have such a breadth of people in our city that represent all walks of life, right? And and to be civically engaged is to be constantly, you know, anxious or angry. Um, <laughs> yes. But it can be more than that. It can be more than that. And I think because I have, you know, this decade-long reputation of showing up to our city's nonprofit fundraisers and sporting events and art activities and just, you know, listening and watching and observing, you know, I think it really, it speaks volumes of the sort of energy that is inherent and readily available in our community. If we just listen, we just need to listen. (laughs) Really, it's that simple. And, you know, I don't believe that the change that Ogden City needs to see is in the city council chambers. I mean, you know, the policies we make and the ordinances we pass, those are so important. But your average citizen doesn't understand understand the difference in form-based code and, you know, all of these jargony things that the bureaucrats of our city like to talk about, right? But they know they know that their neighborhood is feeling a little bit contentious on certain issues, be it Leicester Park or uh, housing or, you know, there are all of these issues that can really be boiled down to front porch conversations if you just listen. Hmm. So a lot of it is like like Sheena, like people mm-hmm. just know what you do and yeah. come to you for support. Absolutely. So what are the things that you're most passionate about for Ogden right now? Ooh, that's a great question. I really believe in this premise that like public office belongs to public servants. It is, in my view, the city government's role to ensure that the infrastructure is there to kind of cultivate that sort of community. You know, I I talked earlier about how lonely I was in New York. The feeling of loneliness was so deep that I got into this habit of, of bringing my lunch or buying my lunch and going to sit at a park bench in Central Park. And I very purposefully would sit at different park benches kind of around the same area and eat my lunch. And the people I met on those park benches, I will never remember their name. I'll never, I might remember a few of them, but I'll never remember, you know, what they were wearing or the weather that day, but I'll always remember how they made me feel. And for a brief 30 minutes, they made me feel this sense of connection to place and to people and to, you know, this idea of community that I'll never forget. And I think about, I think about Ogden and I think about the infrastructure that our city provides to form those sort of connections, to form those sort of relationships with strangers or people you may know. And I think about what we rob our residents of and the visitors of our city when we do not provide that infrastructure. So when I say let's get back to the basics, I want a park bench, at least one, in every single one of Ogden City's parks. But I'm also talking about the the ways we connect kind of broadly speaking, right? 
I am so energized by the bus rapid transit system that's being put in in Ogden City because for the first time, we're going to have an efficient and effective way to get from one place of our city to the next. And, you know, for someone who, like myself who chose to live along that transit corridor, I cannot wait to jump on that bus and go see a play at Weber State or to jump on that bus and see some music down at Harp and Hound or, or you're even jumping on the front runner and going to visit our neighboring cities is going to be easier. And that's a huge multi-million dollar project that requires federal investment, state investment and local investment. <laughs> but it's a piece of basic infrastructure that should be prioritized because the way we connect with people and at the local level is so important. A lot of our infrastructure is aging. What are we doing to ensure that our sidewalks are kept up, that they're wide enough to where you can walk side by side with your partner or your puppy or your kids in a safe way? Our streets are some of the most unsafe streets in the state as far as pedestrian auto accidents are concerned. A few weeks ago, a crossing guard was hit in a hit and run Mm -hmm. as they were trying to usher a kid across the street. That's a big issue for me. The way we design our city should be reflective of the people who live in the city, and we should be prioritizing their needs and their wants in the projects that we undertake as a city. And I've seen a lot of energy and a lot of money going to private development. And I'm, I'm not saying I'm against private development. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm against incentivizing certain areas of growth within our city. But when we do that at the expense of the park benches and at the expense of you know an urban canopy that can keep our streets a little bit cooler in the summer heat, we need to be sure that we're prioritizing those needs. And again, we just have to listen to the residents. So... Will you, um, I just kind of lost track of the the Marshall White stuff. You had talked to me back when it was kind of up in the air. Are people happy with how that got resolved? You know, it's been a huge issue for hundreds, if not thousands of people. And this, this is personal for me. And not because I grew up at the Marshall White Center. I didn't grow up at the Marshall White Center. But I did grow up in a community center just like the Marshall White Center. I grew up pretty poor. Me and my sisters, we were latchkey kids because my mom often worked two jobs, sometimes 70 hours plus to make ends meet. And sometimes it wasn't enough. But I remember the year I went to junior high school, I went to a brand new junior high that was attached to a community center. And my junior high received federal funding to to do a community program after school, right? Um, And for the first time that I could remember, me and my sisters, we weren't going home to an empty apartment with little food on the shelves. We were spending time with our peers after school in a structured program that really kind of forced us to get good grades and to uh, be engaged in our in our kind of school life in a way that I had never experienced. I found my love for the arts. I found my love for school leadership. I joined student government. And so for me, when I moved to Ogden and I started going to the Martin Luther King breakfast at the Marshall White Center, or I started going to community meetings at the Marshall White Center, I saw in this building something that really saved my life. More importantly, I started listening to the people who have these wonderful stories of growing up at the Marshall White Center. But you look around that building today, and it is it is ruins of what it once was when it was built, or when it was opened in 1968, rather. And in the last six years, especially since the pool closed in 2017, more and more services just keep getting stripped away or, or eliminated from the Marshall White Center. There's no community pool. The weight room was was sold off after COVID. The the ceramics class was reduced to just once a week. The computers were were given to a nonprofit, so there's no longer community computers for people to build resumes or do homework. 
And so for me, when this issue started to bubble up in 2016, again, I got to work and we started organizing the Save the Marshall White Coalition. And we really became a group dedicated to not only improving the building, but we looked around and said, we deserve a new building. And the great thing about the Marshall White Center is it wasn't just one demographic that was really jazzed about the Marshall White Center. You had elderly people who used the swimming pool for their water aerobics. You had kids who used the boxing ring and you had teenagers that loved the weight room. You had like, it was everybody from all walks of life that came together and said, this is an important asset to our community. And you know, when, when the, the threat of moving the center was happening, we dug into the research on the Marshall White Center. And not many people know this, but the white family sold their home to the city and leveled it to make way for the center to be built in 1966. Wow. And so when I, when I told this story to people really amplified the story, cause it's not my story to tell. I told people this is sacred ground and I, and I believe that, right? Because a sacrifice was made by this family who, who had a father and a husband who made the ultimate sacrifice, right? Marshall white was the first, black officer in our state to, to be shot and killed on the line of duty. And for 50 something years, the Marshall White Center was the only publicly owned building in our entire state to be named after a person of color for 50 years, for 50 years. It wasn't until an elementary school in Salt Lake City was named after a black teacher, a black female teacher that, that then still there's still only two buildings, right? And so for me, the Marshall White Center was this larger conversation of belonging and inclusion that was being left out in this conversation of well, recreation centers are really expensive to run and we can't afford it. And it's in a, you know, quote unquote, bad area of town, right? So we did get what we wanted. As a community, we will be breaking ground on a new facility, I would hope in the next few months. Is that everything we want? No. The process of, of, of government, it involves trading of, you know, priorities. And I'm a firm believer in this concept that was originally kind of coined by the disabled community when the Americans for Disabilities Act was being passed in the late 80s, early 90s. The disabled community said nothing about us without us to Congress because Congress was passing this huge monumental piece of legislation without a single disabled person at the table. Mm. Um, you know, and I've made three promises to myself, to my loved ones, and to anybody that I've talked to about this campaign. The first promise is to listen more than I talk. Not demonstrating that because this is a podcast. <laughs> we asked you to talk. Yeah. But to listen more than I talk. My second promise is to always involve the people um, at the root of whatever issue we're talking about, right? If we're talking about police reform, beat cops should be in that conversation. If we're talking about education, teachers and students should be at the center of that conversation. And my third promise is to always admit when I'm wrong and to make the necessary repairs to ensure that whatever harm that might have occurred because I was wrong, to make sure that it is repaired. Those are the three promises that I'm that I know I can hold myself to. And I think the Marshall White Center is a perfect example of that in in, in involving the communities that are most impacted by, you know, the lack of or the potential for a new community center in that neighborhood. Well, yeah, I was sure the writing was on the wall when I heard the studies about, you know, this would be more viable somewhere else. We could make yep. more money. Yep. I was sure that was something you would not be able to overcome, yeah. but somehow you did. And was it just making yeah. sure that everybody, you know, was out there talking about it? Yeah. And, you know, I'll push back a little bit. It wasn't me that did this. I think it's important to give credit where credit is due. It was the hundreds of people that showed up to the city council meeting in November of 2021 and demanded more from our local government, right? I stood side by side 
I did not stand above. I'm never above. I'm always one of. I, I believe in that, you know, to my core. We, we fought and we won in a way that I think should be written about <laughs> in the history books. And But the, the story of the Marshall White Center, it, it it's almost perennial. It's about every 10 years this conversation has popped up. We need more services. Let's get, let's, we need to throw a coat of paint on the walls. Let's get us, get more classes uh, going. And, you know, I'm ready to put that conversation to bed. I'm ready to say, you know, Marshall White Center, it's just step one in providing a community center that everybody can belong in. I don't believe that the Marshall White Center should be the only community center in the city. In fact, I'd like to see us expand to do more of like a hub and spoke model where Marshall White Center, it's the core. It's right downtown. It's a few blocks from 25th Street. But what about the north side? What about north of 12th Street? What about up by Ogden High School? What about West Ogden? That's so often left out of the conversations. Mm -hmm. We can and should have access to quality community assets. And that's really what I want to spend the next, you know, four to eight years as mayor doing. I don't know a lot about that issue, but Marshall White Center is owned by the city. Yep. And so am I wrong? Like, does that get paid for in tax dollars? Yeah. So the Marshall White Center was built on a bond, a voter approved bond that was passed in 1966. Uh Uh-huh. Um, so the infrastructure was paid for over probably, you know, 10 to 15 years. Right. So the building has been paid for probably since the mid 70s. But the operations of it, yeah. that has been kind of back and forth. You know, I mentioned this kind of con- contestation of like every 10 years, what's going on at the Marshall White Center for a few, for several years, actually decades. The city did not operate the Marshall White Center. It was given to a, not given, it was leased to a nonprofit to run as a community center. And it's only been in the last 15 years that the city took it back over and said, we'll do the operations. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, during the conversations of Marshall White Center, there was a lot of conversations about the city saying, we don't want to run, we don't want to run any community centers. That was a huge point of contention because they, they don't think the city's good at it. They think that, you know, it's better suited for a nonprofit to do. And, you know, right now it seems like we're in this camp of, oh, okay, the city's going to run it. But that could shift depending on who our next mayor is. If we get a mayor that doesn't want to run recreation centers, they could do the same thing that the administration in the early 90s did and said, let's give it to a nonprofit. If you become mayor, do you see yourself pursuing any major changes in direction on some of the big things going on, like Rite Aid or Wonder Block or Union Station, even, you know, the arts district, any of that stuff? I think for me, I want better voice in government. You know, I've talked about putting people back at the center. For me, it's not so much the final product of some of these major developments that have been happening in Ogden that is the problem. It's how it's the process. It's how we get there, right? Like, I don't go to, you know, my favorite uh, coffee store in Ogden is Coffee Links. Shout out to Coffee Links. They're down on Park um, right by the Riverbend. I don't look at the development that's happened around Riverbend and think, oh, that's ugly or, oh, that's bad or, oh, like... I look at it and I see a walkable community that's dense, right? It, not necessarily built for me, right? I, I, I own a house with a yard because I have dogs and, I, you know, we thought about going a townhouse direction and we ended up against it. But I see hundreds of people living around a, a new development in a d- new development that really works for them, right? They they can go to the, the brewery. They can go to grab a taco, grab a coffee. It's a great little development. The process of getting there really matters to me, right? Especially when, when incentives are involved, especially incentives with, you know, million dollars involved or more. How we get there really matters. Um, so, you know, you ask if, if there would be a major shift. 
there would be a major shift in the way we do things. For example, Ogden used to have community councils. They were undone, you know, a little over 10 years ago because they, the administration didn't view them as productive. You know, when I talk about AVA, when I talk about residents being involved from the grassroots up, I look at community councils as a really viable and, and diverse way to involve community voice from the ground up. And I think about the value of, of what a community council would do for, let's say, the Rite Aid Project, right? Right now, the Rite Aid Project, um, and they've held a few open houses at the library, same 12 people go. I'm one of them. And, you know, you go around with your little post-it and you vote on what you like and what you don't like about the project that's being proposed. What would happen if instead of dot voting and, and open houses, we met on, you know, someone's front lawn with 12 of our neighbors and discussed what we needed for the Rite Aid location. That information is fed into the city um, in a way that allows the city to respond before a plan is even developed. Right now, we do this thing where we build these big projects on paper and we put them in a beautiful box with like wrapping and it's really pretty and there's branding and there's like a marketing plan. And then we put it on people's front porch and we say, okay, open it. And we wait as eagerly as we can for them to open it and they open it and they're like, what is this? I didn't ask for this. (laughs) Um, What would happen if the process of making that project was by and with that community instead of to and for that community? Nobody needs to save our community. Our, Our neighborhoods are already vital. They're already vibrant. We need someone to work with our community to ensure that an effort of placekeeping is prioritized and that kind of cultural, local history that's really unique to that neighborhood is preserved and enhanced. Mm -hmm. And the issues that are important to me and my neighbors around the Rite Aid are going to be very different than the issues of my friend Ella who lives up on Taylor across the street from Mount Ogden Park. It's just, you know, 10 blocks away, but our issues are not the same. So I think about this idea of a community council and what that could mean for this kind of hyper localization of issues and how that work could really start down and work its way into the city in a way that's meaningful and robust. So uh, for people who want to get involved in your campaign, have you got um, stuff coming up? Have you got good ways to contact you all that? Yeah. So we have had an incredible launch to our campaign. You know, I I always knew that we would get to this moment in the campaign where we felt really secure about the number of volunteers we're engaging, the number of donors we have. I thought it would take six months, not six weeks. So we have an incredible, you know, call it a movement, call it a campaign, whatever you want. Um, We have this incredible core of people who have stepped up and said this message of community connection, character, and getting back to the basics is a powerful one that's worthy of spreading. So, um, you know, if you want to get involved, taylorforogden.com, there's a get involved tab. If you want to make a donation, you can do that on the on the website. But for me, this is this is a grassroots campaign through and through. Uh, It will be powered by people. Um, it will be powered by our neighbors. It will be powered by this sense of community. And I feel very good that it will propel us into a victory come November. So I really believe that a good leader pulls out the leader in other people. Yeah. That's what I really love about you is that you just want to elevate other people's voices. You know, I, I was at an, an event sometime this last week and the speaker was talking about the progress of humans understanding of the stars. And how even, you know, in the primitive ages, people were looking up at the stars and seeing these little dots of light. 
and they didn't make sense. And so what did we do? We connected the dots to make them make sense. We made pictures and we mm-hmm. made stories about Orion or, you know, Sagittarius. And we started to form an understanding by connecting the dots. And, you know, it reminded me of my work at United Way because a lot of the times when I was working at United Way, I would tell people that my job is to connect the dots. I would get a call from a fresh and they'd be like you know what this this truck got into a car accident and i have four pallets of cereal and i don't know what to do with it and i would think to myself oh you know what? i was in a meeting with ccs last week they have a shortage of cereal <laughs> it was all about hey a fresh ccs needs this let's connect the dots yeah and that is the power that's inherent of, of, of someone like me who's kind of grown in the community, through the community, and up into the community. That's the power of a mayor that understands connecting the dots mm-hmm. and of bringing people together mm-hmm. to make great things happen. Yeah. I will say it again, no issue I've ever worked on in this community I've done alone. I've done it side by side, incredible, courageous, bold, innovative people who are my neighbors, who are my coworkers, who are sometimes bureaucrats of the city, sometimes, you know, uh, activists. That's the power of humanity, really. But of what, what makes Ogden this incredible city that we all have chosen to live in? Ogden's a community of choice for so many. Yeah. You know, 87 some odd thousand people that we know of. And really, we need someone who understands the power of connecting the dots, understands the power of providing a microphone or, a you know, a soapbox for communities to speak to the issues that are important to them. And that's who I am. Yeah. It's who I've always been. I love that. Yeah. Well, that's all I've got. Okay. Boom. Watch our Instagram and YouTube pages for video clips of this interview, along with samples of content from our previous guests. Thank you to Taylor for joining us. Again, his website, taylorforogden.com. Thanks to my wife, Sheena, for being a podcasting pro. And thanks to all of you for listening, sharing, and helping us grow.